Good morning. Welcome to Subject ACT for local current affairs from a curious and informed perspective. I'm Doug Dobing. Today on Subject ACT, we talk with Swin Tam Fo, also known more formally as the Salvation Army National Secretary, Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Fo. We talk with Swin about being a refugee and building a new life in Australia. During our program, Swin talks about what it was like almost 40 years ago to escape war-torn Vietnam as a 21-year-old and come to Australia as a refugee, only speaking a few basic phrases of English. Today, Swin lives in Canberra as the Salvation Army National Secretary, talking with politicians and governments, advocating for the work of the Salvation Army and the disadvantaged. Swin, good morning and welcome to Subject ACT. Good morning, Doug. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Very happy to. Now, you have quite an interesting story about your journey to Australia. You escaped civil war in Vietnam, disguised as a a repairer of a fishing boat, went to Malaysia, then come to Australia many years ago. What are your early recollections as a child in Vietnam? My uh, recollection, simply one word, war. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was born in the war, during the Vietnam War. And all my life when I was growing up, war has been uh, there for me mm-hmm. uh, to experience. Sometimes the war came very close to where I lived and uh, the fear of being uh, bombed or killed or uh, whatever, you know, is it, really real in, in, uh, in my growing up. Mm-hmm. So that was my experience there. But then again, because that's a daily occurrence, so uh, it became, in a sense, normal. Mm. Uh, say, for example, if I see a tank in the, in the street, so what? If I see soldiers, you know, with, with uh, seeing guns and things like that, so what? Yes. So it, it, it hasn't, uh, it didn't turn out to be something that uh, uh, unusual to me. Mm. But the fear of being a bomb uh, was real because uh, every night, you know, I remember I had a, family who uh, somehow uh, wanted to stay with our family because our family stayed in, in the middle of uh, the capital. Mm. Uh, he, they felt safer to stay with us. And the father of the family uh, did not sleep at night. All he did was uh, sitting up, smoking, drinking tea mm. all night. So dad would stay up all night to make sure the family was safe. Yeah, to make sure that if anything happened, they can go straight away. And, yeah. and we, we were told that we, we, we sleep with our, uh, all our documentation on, on you know, in, mm. our, on, in our body, really, you know. Uh, so like my birth certificate and things like that. So if anything happened, at least I, I got something to prove my identity. Mm. So every day as a child, you grew up living in fear in, in a war city. But for you, it, you, it just seemed normal. Um, now, I, what, what was the freedom like for you, um, your daily life? Well, I, I think we didn't uh, expect very much, really, because uh, we were young. Mm. Uh, and, and the war actually sometimes uh, interrupted our uh, school schedule. Yes. Uh, which was very good for us. <laughs> <laughs> Any excuse to get out of school. That's right. That's right. So, so really, we, uh, because it ha- that was a normal uh, daily occurrence, as I said. Yes. So we didn't feel anything uh, special, really. Mm. Uh, okay, sometimes, you know, we felt a bit of uh, pressure because the bombing coming, you know, at night. Uh, other than that, you know, as kids, we just, you know, just ha- happy. 
Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, we didn't think very much about the future, in a sense. Yeah, so despite the war, you still had a happy family life. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We had a very good church life. Yes. After 75, when the uh, communists took over the country, mm -hmm. and uh, I think the, the new government was very uh, worried or, or fearful of uh, reprisal. Some remnant of the soldiers would probably would attack the government, whatever. Mm. So they decreed that uh, if uh, any gathering of five or more, you needed to have a permission for that. Yes. Uh, even at your, at your home. So Dad had a birthday party and uh, had some friends over. Suddenly I, I found out that we were surrounded <laughs> by police. <laughs> so happy, happy birthday and the police came in. Yeah, and I, 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 uh, Dad was taken away. Really? For question. But then, you know, uh, nothing happened to him. Uh, but that was the... That was the life. Hmm. Wow. And what was your motivation to leave? Well, it, it's, uh, if you ask me, I always wanted to go out uh, to go overseas to study. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then I always wanted to go back to Vietnam to leave. And that was my dream when I was growing up. But mm. then when the war came, when, when communists took over the country, you can say because we were brainwashed, about you know whatever communism will do to you. Yes. But we were fearful of the life under communism. Yes. But then that fear was proven mm. uh, when the government took some actions in regard to the citizens in uh, the, the capital. Yes. And a very drastic action. I, I couldn't see any hope for my future. And mm. at the time, I happened to be at the age of going to university. Yes. And the university uh, courses, or military courses, or political courses. Yes. Uh, you, you can't study anything else. So what did you study? This Now, this was in... Um what would it be, Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City? Yeah. Yes. I actually, funny enough, I somehow I was accepted to do a physical education course. So uh, that was something I liked yeah. because I, I like sports. And I had to do something. Otherwise, I would have been ended up in the army. Really? So university was a way to avoid being conscripted? University has always been uh, a way to avoid conscription. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the past government or the present government. Yeah. Now, your story of leaving the country... Just tell a bit about your story, how you actually escaped. Well, uh, in order to escape, there was a lot of going on behind uh, closed door, really, mm. which I was not allowed to know. Mm -hmm. And everything was arranged by my father. Yes. Uh, later in life, I find out that was very wise for my dad mm. not to allow me to know because I wouldn't have been courageous enough to leave if I have known that, you know, because it was a not very pretty journey or comfortable journey. Okay, so how old were you at the time? I was 21. So you were 21, a young man. Yeah, I was um, 21. Yeah. Now, you said some things were horrifying. I mean, what are you okay to talk about oh, yeah, what it was sure. like? Yeah. Sure. I, I, uh, I must say, though, I know the pain of uh, leaving the birthplace mm -hmm. was still here with me. Yes. And, and, you know, one doesn't make a decision to leave, uproot, no. to leave everything behind. Yeah. When I said left everything behind, literally it's true because I couldn't take anything with me. So you left everything behind for yeah. a new life. Yeah. Then, mm. then I left my parents, I left my sister and my brother. Uh, and as you know, the chance of reunion never guaranteed. Exactly. That so, means, you know, uh, I, would, I never know whether I would see my parents again or my family again. Mm. So that was a very hard part. All I could bring with me was, was uh, memory. But yes. I didn't have any, uh, like, photographs or... You couldn't any, take any of that, just in what was in your mind. 
That's right. Yeah, so, yeah. so for example, now I, when I talk to my daughters, I couldn't show them anything back then. You see, yeah. I didn't have any photographs to show them. Of course, this is where that lived and things like that, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. Which, so, which for many people these days, showing your family a photograph where you grew up is normal. But you didn't have that opportunity to take with you. Well, because I, I felt that I lost part of me. Now, okay. yep. The history is only known to me. Yes. I don't have anything to prove it. What is I prove it? I, I, want, I want to leave something for my children. When they grow up, they know, oh, there you are. This is my dad and that sort of thing. Yes. And, and that is painful. Yes, it's fain- painful, yeah. 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 And uh, so, so uh, uh, that is emotionally, probably psychologically. Yeah. But physically, leaving the way I did was very dangerous because we actually... Escape illegally. But you ha- that was really the only way you could do that, isn't it? That's correct. That's the only way you can do that. Because mm. the government would not let, well, especially young men, to leave the country. Uh, so there was no other way except to escape Vietnam illegally. That's right. And well, how- there are a few ways of escaping. For example, you, you either by boat, yes. uh, going out of the sea, or you actually walk across to uh, China. Some yeah. people did that. Uh, you don't walk across to uh, Cambodia. <laughs> you escape from Cambodia just to Vietnam. <laughs> so, so really, uh, you... uh, by sea was the most convenient way, I suppose. Mm. So that's what my dad chose that. And, and also because the person who arranged this uh, trip was sort of a family friend. Okay, yeah. And uh, yeah. as you would appreciate, you know, you wouldn't go with anyone, a stranger, to put it this way. No, not a young man. Yeah, you trust... Oh, not, not only a grown-up. Yes. Because, you know... If you did not trust this person, you wouldn't give them the money yeah. or your life. And in effect, you are trusting that person well, because, with your life. Because yes. the, the person who arranged this trip, his family was also on board, you see. Yeah. That, that yeah. was why my dad you know, sort of felt safe uh, mm. for me to go with the family. Because, you know, if, if he arranged for his family to go on this trip, it must be okay. Yes. So how did you escape? The way to escape is to go to the uh, countryside, uh, like a, a fishing village. Yes. And as you know, in a little countryside, a city boy yeah. was very easy uh, to identify. See? <laughs> and a tall one, too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And your, your, your skin is not dark enough, you know. <laughs> so did you stay some time in the country to, to sort of... No, not, not for long. No. Not for long. Yeah. Uh, only for a few days. Yeah. But in that few days, you know, I, I acted as a... I don't know, a helper on a boat, something like that, you know. I remember, you know, I was asked to jump down to, to, to the bottom of the boat and, and try to fix something, which I couldn't see. I think the water was so dark. <laughs> so <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't know what to do anyway, so... <laughs> So it was a, a, a fun experience, but, yeah. but, but you know, uh, the idea was if I stayed there for a few days, then I uh, would have been seen by the locals, yeah. and people would say, oh, uh, you're working there, that sort of thing, you know, and then that would reduce a bit of a suspicion, you know. Yeah, what a story. And, and your journey was from Vietnam to Malaysia? That's right, yeah. yeah. And what was the journey like? Oh, well, I, I'm not a mechanic. <laughs> and I was given the job to look after the machine, <laughs> the engine. Let me tell you. <laughs> it was very funny. <laughs> so how did you do that? Well, okay. well, the one thing, good thing about this, I mean, the diesel, the smell of it, oh, goodness me, it's absolutely horrible. Yeah. But the... the the one good thing about that was because it's the engine room, so nobody else can come in, you see. So you were in charge of the engine I was in room. charge, but <laughs> I knew nothing, okay? <laughs> I, so you're very qualified for the job then? Yeah, it was funny. Yeah. But, but then, because I was the only one there, actually, I actually can find a place where I can lay down to yeah. sleep. Wow. Whereas people up 
on the deck. There was everybody sitting up. How many? How many were on the boat? 182, young and old. 182. Yeah. For how many should be normally on that boat? Well, <laughs> I don't know, but 182 <laughs> is a lot. I'll tell you what. The size of the boat is 20 meter long by yeah. four. Really? So 20 meters long by four meters, and it had 182 people on yeah. it. And yeah. so you had plenty of room in the engine. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> anyway, what, so. So that was that was okay. Mm. And one day, nature called, so I had to uh, know, go out to on the deck. Yep. And and then someone occupied my place. They took your place. They took my place. I couldn't get back in, but I didn't want to go, get back in because as soon as I get out, and and then I, I had the CA. Oh, it was so beautiful. Beautiful, yeah, yeah. So so I wouldn't get back in. No. So now, it... can I say something to you? Yeah. This is, may sound a bit crude, but that's real life. Yes. You got to be very careful when you go to the toilet because there's no toilet. That means you you actually do it. In in front of everybody. Yes, and you're vulnerable then too. And you've got to hold on to someone. If you fell, you know, in the sea, that's it. Yeah, and that's right. You're gone. That's yeah. right. They would not turn back. No. And thirdly, can I say? Now it sounds funny. Yeah. But it was true. You got to know where the wind blows too. <laughs> So downstream safer. That's right. Oh dear. No, oh. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I said to people, I felt like an animal. Yeah. Because yeah. that's life. Yeah. So you were reduced to those basic things like an animal. Yeah. You, you lost your dignity human, your as, human a, dignity. as a human being, really. All you wanted to do then is to try to secure your life. And the seas, were they dangerous seas at the time? What were they like? Uh, there was one night that was dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, talking about that, let me say, tell you, you know, after I finished my business, I, <laughs> I, could, I couldn't find anywhere to sit because it was occupied, you see? Yes. Nobody would give it to you no. eh? because everybody... Everyone's they, got they, their own space. like an animal life, an uh, animal world, as I say. Yeah. So, and somehow I found a little hole on the boat. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I don't know what that hole is for. And I got a recess, you know, somewhere. Mm. And then I jumped down and, and nobody was there. Yes. It was uh, the place was full of hay. Yeah. So, and then, oh, by the way, I was very seasick too. As soon as I was supposed to be a mechanic, <laughs> <laughs> so so you're a, a a man pretending to be a mechanic, but you didn't know anything about uh, mechanics. And then seasick, yeah, and seasick. Yeah. Oh dear, so you're a landlubber. Yeah. Oh, now, so so yeah. I, I was there. So I found a place where nobody actually was there with me, or you know, mm. fighting for the room. So I was there. So again, I went. To, I went to sleep. Yeah. And every day, I got someone come down to me and woke me up. Right. Right. And I said, oh. Uh-huh, Yes. Oh, you're still alive. <laughs> they were surprised. Yeah. So, so I left. Yeah. But, but but nobody actually came down to share the place with me. I had no idea. Wow. I, until today, I had no idea why nobody. Uh, apparently, some sort of uh, 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 like a toilet for lady or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody actually came down to me. And so I understand you went to Malaysia, and and while you're in a Mal- Malaysia, you applied to come to Australia as a refugee. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you another story before I went to... Um, yeah, for to, sure, for sure, yeah. This is a story which I, I, I will never forget. Mm-hmm. Where I was in a little hole there, and one day I was woken up by a lot of noise mm-hmm. on the deck. Yes. And uh, I, I listened carefully, and then suddenly I found out there was a, it was an argument between a man and a woman. Right, right. It's actually, it was a husband and a wife, and they actually fighting over food. Really? For themselves or, or for, for themselves? The, yeah. And to me, I said then, I may I judge them, I said, look, you know, come on, husband and wife, you know, you're escaping together. Mm. You should look after each other instead of fighting for a piece of fruit. Mm-hmm. So, you know what? That piece of fruit suddenly fell down onto me. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you now, have I don't know whether you know the, the fruit called uh, yam bean. Yam bean, yes, yes. Yeah, you know, with with the with the uh, uh, the skin like uh, you know, you can peel it off. The flesh is white. Yes, it's yes. very juicy and very filling. Yes, the whole one came down to me. <laughs> and you know what I did? That? What did you do? I actually grabbed it. Yes. And in my mind, and I said this: yep. if anyone come down here to get it back, I'm going to kill it. Really? So is that desperation for the food? That's right. Now, yeah. the, the thing was, I just told you, mm. I criticized the husband and wife fighting for food. Yes. And here I am, because of this food, I want to kill someone. How many days were you on the boat for? Five days. Five That's what, days. the only, only piece of food I had. Really? So in five days, this the yam fell yeah. your way? That's right. And to have the food and something to eat, you were prepared or thinking to kill. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I was willing to kill anyone who come down to get that piece of food from me. Does that surprise you? It absolutely stunned. Yeah. And I said, how on earth I, I had this sort of thought? Mm. And, and, you know, I really, really, I, I suddenly realized I, I was an animal, yeah. absolute animal. I did eat the whole food, but nobody came down. But the thought of killing someone for that piece of fruit yeah. actually frightened me. That's the state of where you were. Did you have water in those days? No. So no fresh water, no, no food. No fresh water, nobody sharing with you at all. And no, no one communicating or sharing. No, no. I was alone. Thank you for listening to Subject ACT on 2XXFM 98.3, People Powered Radio. You are listening to Swin Tam Fo, or as some people know him more formally, as the Salvation Army National Secretary, Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Fo, about being a refugee and building a new life in Australia. Coming up next, Swin talks about working in Canberra as the Salvation Army National Secretary. When he arrived in Australia almost 40 years ago, he could only speak a few phrases of English. Now Swin talks with politicians and governments advocating for the work of the Salvation Army and the disadvantaged. So you started a new life in Malaysia? We actually landed in mm-hmm. Malaysia mm-hmm. and then uh, the skipper actually had to pay a bribe the Malaysian Navy yep. so that we could get in. Right, okay. And so we destroyed the boat straight away so that they cannot tow us out again. So one, the evidence is gone, but two, you can't have another way to That's go right. back. Okay. So then we were given status as refugee mm-hmm. by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, something UNHCR. Yes. Then we stay in the camp. And then uh, the camp was very primitive, by the way. You know, we, we had to build our own house. Really? No, okay. Not house, hut. Hut, yeah, yeah, yeah. Out of what materials? Bamboo. Bamboo, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, every morning when it, when it got up, you know, my body was covered with powder because the, the little uh, worms in, in bamboo sort of eating up mm. the bamboo. And all, all the uh, dust, you know, coming from right. the ceiling. Yeah. I don't know whether, you know, that would have any health uh, concern there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, the bu- <laughs> <laughs> so the bugs were eating your hut. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. So now, how, how long were you in Malaysia before you applied to go to Australia? Well, I was there in, uh, let me see, 28th of June. Mm-hmm. No, I left I left on the 26th of June because I left on my 21st birthday. Right, right. All right. So I was there for, uh, until, uh, when I landed, in, in uh, Melbourne, that was in October 28th. Okay, so there's from the yeah. 6th to the 10th month, so yeah. four months. Yeah, four months, yeah. So four was months. that the 26th of October? Yeah, 28th of October. 28th, so yeah, yeah four months. Four wow. months, yeah. yeah. And your journey, quick, by the way. compared to a lot of the processing and the talk of refugees and status here, four months is very quick from escape to get into Australia. That's right. Yeah. Could you speak English when you arrived in Australia? No, I did not. Any at all? 
How are you? Thank you. Good morning. Okay, so just a couple of basic phrases. That's right. Because my education uh, was French, and I did know a bit of English simply because in senior high school we they had to take the second foreign language. Which, uh, when I chose French was my first foreign language, then mm. English was the second one. I had no other choice. Yeah. But that was only introductory sort of lessons, not the serious one. So introductory so, French. So, yes, that's yes, right. Yes. Yes. So your the languages that you could speak at the time, what were they? Vietnamese, of course. Yes. Uh, Cantonese, Mandarin, mm-hmm. and French. And French, yeah. but no English. So how did how did you survive in Australia when you got here? It took me six months to learn English, and then I became an interpreter. Really? And I was employed by the immigration department. Really? So within six months, you learnt the language, trained to be an interpreter, and worked for the immigration department. And where to from there? I mean, you, you've got involved with the Salvation Army. How, how did that eventuate? When we arrived in Melbourne, we mm-hmm. were put in a hostel and uh, where uh, I met the army because the army came to uh, give us some clothes. Okay. Uh, and uh, coming from a tropical country, you know, we feel very, we feel very, very cold. For sure, even yes. in, in, in uh, October. <laughs> so that's how I, I met up with the army, and I told the major. Yes, I said, look, you know, I was Christian. I like to go to church. Yes. So uh, there you are. And how many years ago is that? That was, that was 1978. 1978, and then you trained as a Salvation Army officer. What are some of the roles as a Salvation Army officer that you've done since that time? I I spend majority of my life. Officership as a core officer. Core is like a church That's right. minister. Yes, a church minister. But I did have two years in the public relations department as a media officer, and then I had uh, an appointment overseas in Hong Kong, where I was in charge of Hong Kong, Macau, and China. Yes, and then came back here. I came back to Australia. I had another stint in uh, the public relations department. Yep, and that's in Melbourne. Before I uh, was appointed to uh, to Canberra. Okay, great. And your role at the moment is national secretary. What what does that involve? Yes, my role as a uh, national secretary. My role in Canberra is to represent the Salvation Army to the federal government. Right, right. So my role is to facilitate a greater involvement of Salvation Army in the political process. Yes. By building up relationship of trust you know, with, with the police. Representing the Salvation Army, what are some of the big issues that you're liaising with them about? As you know, that the army has a lot of work that was funded by the government, <laughs> and like employment, like welfare, counselling, and family violence, and things like that. That's right, and crisis assistance, and chaplaincy in jails, and with right. the, the Defence Force. Right. Yes, the Salvation Army does do a lot of work in Australia, yeah. Right. <laughs> and and some, a lot of time that we need to speak to the government in regard to the way we feel that things should be done and things like that. My role is to advocate for, on behalf of the Salvation Army, as well as for the people that we serve. Yes. Uh, the poor and the marginalised, really. Yep. And so I do this by seeking meetings with uh, politicians as often as it's reasonably possible. Yeah. And also being available to meet them in places where they, you know, the staff may find themselves. It's like a, act like a bridge, really. But sometimes I do go to Canberra and uh, then our case to them in a way that, you know, we're, so, you know, we're here, we need to do this and, and things like that. Uh, mm. Now, and, Swin, what year did you come into Australia? I came to Australia in 1978. So in 39 years, you've come to Australia as a refugee, not speaking a word of English, and you're now representing the Salvation Army and advocating on behalf of the poor and the marginalised with politicians and the government. That is an amazing achievement. 
I really thank God for this. Mm. Uh, I, I thank the army too because I felt when I was accepted to come to Australia, I felt very humble because when I arrived, I was given everything. You know, mm. given a house, somewhere to live, I, I was given food, I was given even little money to, for me to spend before I actually pay any taxes. And to me, that is something that I can never understand. Yeah, so they and gave you an opportunity, to, a place to live and food and money. What the army has done for me it was to, to provide an avenue whereby I can serve the God I love, yes. serve the God I worship, yep. but also repay the goodness that I received from Australia, from the people of Australia. And this is, to me, it's a mighty honour yes. uh, as an officer. Yep. And I, I treasure it. You know, I, I, uh, I feel this is the way that you know, uh, I can live, yeah. and I need to live like that, because yeah. you know, uh, I was given an opportunity whereby you know, I can do things mm. that I felt meaningful. And so your life is really a way of giving back as a thank you mm. for all the good that's been done for you and opportunities that's been done for you. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. I, I think I thank the Salvation Army simply because the Army actually gives me the opportunity to do that and mm. the avenue to do that. What are you willing to, to say in regards to the way that refugees are being treated at the moment? What, what do you think is going on in that respect and what do you think needs to be done? Can I say this? The basic thing to me is nobody wants to be a refugee. Yep. Just nobody. I mean, I, as I share with you, you know, the pain uh, remains with me mm -hmm. because I left, I uprooted myself and, you know, came to a new country. Nobody would do that. Not by, that. Not by choice, not, not willingly, no. No, I know, I, I didn't tell you, my boat had no compass. Really? Yeah. Now, <laughs> 182 people, 102 lives, and we just stepped out of Vietnam. Yeah. And I asked the skipper, how on earth do you know where to go? So, well, looking at the stars. So did they really know where they were going? No idea. No ideas. But they told you that... <laughs> all, they, all they knew was, this is the direction where we're going to go. And that's it. it, it the skipper pointed at me, that's where we want to go. <laughs> that's it. So they to the unknown. And when we arrived in Malaysia, we had no idea where we were arriving. At, really? You know? So you didn't know where you were going, and no. you had to trust your life. Wow. And, and can you imagine that we want to be like that? No. No. So it, being it a refugee be is not a your choice. No. situation before you make such a decision. Now, mm. I do not think that people now coming as asylum seekers uh, felt easy to make a choice like that either. Mm. I mean, as I said, I always wanted to live where I was born. Mm. I was hoping to die there too, you know, if I was there. So and you wanted to, to grow up and die yeah, in, right. in Vietnam. So now, you know, can you imagine 40 years ago, the current policy was applied. I just had no idea where I would have ended up, mm. in the sea or somewhere. What do you think we need to do as a country with refugees that are coming here at the moment? I think Australia, Australia has always been a country where, personally speaking, look up to because mm. I was accepted. I was received warmly by the people here. Mm. I think we need to continue to do that. Now, you may say, well, you know, too many. Of course, too many. I mean, whatever we can afford, we, we would accept them. Give them a chance to leave. Forty years ago, when I came here, you know, people looked at me probably with suspicion as well. Uh, and now I, well, can I say I have proven them wrong? <laughs> you you uh, have, I, I'm, I'm a person here uh, contributing to the welfare of Australia. And also advocating on behalf of right. many Australians too that are doing it tough. Doesn't matter where the refugees come from. Mm. Can I say the pain is the same. The tear is the same. And it doesn't matter what year they're coming, they did not make an easy choice to leave the country. So they need to be welcomed like right. what they did 40 years ago. I think we, we can do that. We can welcome them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was a person who received the benefit of, of this grace. Yeah. So I like to see that other people also uh, receive this too. To give that opportunity and then That's in turn right. give back. 
in regards to the Salvation Army Red Shield appeal that's coming up very soon, what would you say to people about that appeal? Well, the money is vital to the work that we do. Mm-hmm. We always needed money, more money, to do the thing that we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And this amount of money that we are raising every year is really vital. I mean, it's the minimum that we need to have in order to not only to maintain, but to develop. And look, if we do not have the money, all we have to do is to cut the service. For the service, for people, really. Yeah, for when people, you, when yeah. you put down to the, the bottom line, is the people who are receiving this service, not the Salvation Army. No, so the money that was received is on behalf of people. That's right. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, I, I was the one who also benefited by, by this uh, uh, rescue appeal uh, money because, you know, as I said, you know, I, I was given clothes when I arrived and that money actually from donation from people, mm-hmm. from public. And I, I wanted to appeal to people, say, look, help us to do something that other people would be benefited. Well, I, I, again, I, I want to say that I, I am a grateful person and I thank God for giving me opportunity to leave, uh, but opportunity to serve. Uh, in Australia, uh, where now I call it my home. So I'm a grateful person. I thank God for that. Swin, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you and about your journey as a refugee to now be representing those less fortunate and challenging the government and opening opportunities. But Swin, thank you for joining us on Subject ACT. Thank you, Dad, for giving me the opportunity. That was Swin Tan Fo also known as the Salvation Army National Secretary, Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Foe. You can listen to this program and other informative podcasts at soundcloud.com forward slash subject ACT. Subject ACT is back again tomorrow and each weekday morning from 8.30 to 9. Please comment on our Facebook page or Twitter and also let us know if there are any stories that you would like us to talk about. Coming up next is Women on the Line. Community Radio National Women's Current Affairs Program talking about contemporary women's issues. Stay tuned for more on 2XXFM 98.3. Thank you for joining us on Subject ACT. I'm Doug Doving. Have a great day. <music>